0: Hello and welcome to Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, professor and licensed therapist. Today I want to talk about trauma treatment. In my experience, most therapists do not know how to treat PTSD or trauma effectively. I know that's quite a statement, but I think it's true. There's, there's evidence, and I could I could provide research to back me up here, But in this episode, I want to keep it quick and dirty, and and so I'm not going to go into the research. but, But certainly anecdotally, in my experience, and even in my own career, evaluating my own competence, I can say that the skills involved and the knowledge involved in treating people who have experienced trauma are quite complex and for whatever reason are not propagated through the culture of psychotherapy and counseling. And as a result, I think a lot of clients are going to therapists and being treated with dubious treatment modalities and walking away without being helped and maybe even being harmed. So in this episode, I want to talk about trauma treatment, not not only to you clinicians out there, but also to you non-clinicians, to, to you potential clients, because I think that for whatever reason in our culture, we haven't talked enough about trauma to help people, to seek help from the people that might be able to help them. I think for a lot of people, when they have been traumatized, they, they are told at some point you should see a therapist. But what they aren't told, which is what I think they should be told, is you should see a therapist that knows what they're doing <laughs> because not all therapists are the same when it comes to treating trauma. So l- let me just talk a little bit about what, what I, my own career, I guess is probably a good place to start. When I first started as a therapist 18 years ago, the way that I thought trauma should be treated, it was basically a psychodynamic or psychoanalytic point of view, even though it wasn't taught to me in that way. It's basically a working through of the emotions. And, and there's nothing inherently wrong with this approach. So let me just start by saying that up front. For, for many people, this approach it can work. But for, for some people, it's going to potentially not work and maybe even harm them. Let me just tell you what I, the way that I treated trauma in the beginning of my career, Basically, people would come to me, clients would come to me, and they would say, you know, I, I've, I, I've experienced trauma, and I would like to recover from it. And I'd say, okay, well, let's work on that. You're, you've come to the right place. I'm a therapist. I'm here to help. And, and I really believed that I was. And what would happen would, would be was, you know, they would say, well— Let me just give you one example. There was a, and I changed details to mask the identity of this person, but so she's about 50 years old and she had been sexually abused a number of times as a child. And she comes into therapy and she says she wants to finally work on this. She's only told one or two people in her life and she's never told a therapist about it and and she's ready to work on it. So she comes into my office and this is, I don't know, 15 years ago or something and and incidentally this is a client that i'd been working with for a while on a different issue for about a year and so at a certain point you know about a year into therapy working on other things she says oh and there's this other thing i'd like to work on which is the sexual abuse history that i have and so she says she wants to talk about so I, i say okay well tell me about it and for those of you out there that know the proper way to treat trauma you know already that this is the wrong way to go and you're probably cringing in your seat as i am cringing right now but i say well tell me about what happened and so she proceeds to tell me about the horror that she went through as a child and she's telling me the story she's not telling me every detail but she's telling me quite a bit and and it's quite upsetting to her naturally it's it's an upsetting memory and she's crying and she's upset and she seems a little anxious, a little destabilized. And she, at the end of the session, I ask her how she feels and she says, well, I, I don't know, I feel, I feel kind of weird, but I, I feel good to finally get this off of my chest and, I, and, I'm, and I'm glad that you're not judging me and I, I feel, you know, it feels good to have someone listen and empathize with me. It, that, that feels really good. And, and at the end of that session, as she's walking out the door, I'm thinking, great, this is going to be wonderful. I, you know, She'll come back for a number more sessions, and, and I'll be able to help this, this client. Well, I never saw her again. And I thought, well, that was strange. We had this good relationship for a year talking about other things, and then it got to a point where she felt safe enough to tell me about this trauma. And the session went well. There was no complication in our relationship. She seemed quite satisfied with the way the session went. And then I just never saw her again. She never made another appointment, and that was that. And I thought, well, that's uh, unusual. And so fast forward, I don't know, another year or two, and a very similar situation happened. And I thought, what's going on here? I I You know, the session seems very helpful. The client is talking about the trauma, I'm empathizing and, and holding the, the space and they're working through their emotions, they're getting it off of their chest, they're processing what's happening and you know, they're saying, It was my fault and I'm saying, Well, let's look at that. Doesn't does that seem rational that you would blame yourself for being sexually abused or raped in some way or, or physically abused? And they would say, no, I guess not. I guess it's always just been a feeling I've had. And then after that, I would never see him again. In a time when I would think they would really gravitate toward therapy, they seemed to be repelled from therapy, Seemed to be repulsed from therapy. So I just thought it was very strange. And I thought, well, something's wrong here. So I started to look into the literature and I started asking around to people in the community that are experts in treating trauma. And I came up with the following general treatment plan for a lot of clients that come to me with trauma. And again, the reason why I'm telling people this is not only for you clini- clinicians uh, to benefit if you're not in the know, but also you know for you non-clinicians out there or even clinicians out there who have been traumatized and want to seek therapy because this is the sort of therapy that you should be seeking because you don't want to go to someone that was like me 15 years ago because the me 15 years ago didn't know what he was doing. Okay, so so here's the and like I said before, I could go into the research and the different theorists and everything like that, but I'm not going to because I just want to have this quick and dirty. So, this is what I do. It's basically a three-stage approach. The the first stage is well, maybe four stages. <laughs> There's four stages. I feel like I'm on Monty Python. There, there are four stages t- to my approach. The first stage is an education phase where I talk with the client about what the trauma treatment is going to look like, how long it's going to take, what it's going to feel like, what they're going to get into, what they need to do before we move on to the next step, uh, all this sort of thing, because In order for them to engage in the therapy, they need to be informed properly. They can't consent to something that they don't understand. And so I help them understand it before they consent to it. Even though that they, even though they've consented to be my client, they haven't consented to this mode of therapy, which is really quite specific and and carries with it a fair amount of risk and difficulty. So I do a lot of education and basically I tell them what I'm about to tell you. So once they seem to understand and they consent to treatment, I go to step two, which is a awareness of one's emotions step. For many people that have PTSD or have been traumatized, and I guess many people in general anyway, they are not very aware of their emotions. They aren't used to being asked about their emotions. They're not used to talking about their emotions. They're not used to picking up on their physical cues as to what emotions they're experiencing, or they have a limited range of emotions that they seem to express, like only anger or only sadness, this sort of thing. Or or they might feel quite numb and they might even dissociate. So, and I'll get into that in a second, but the, the first step is I work with them on being aware of their emotions. We don't talk about the trauma yet. That's That's actually a big key point is that we... Uh, Don't talk about the trauma until the last phase, which can be quite long, but we have a few things we have to get into place before we even talk about the trauma. So in this phase, I will talk with people about how much distress they have, and I I always use the same scale. I say, well, on a scale from 1 to 10, how distressed are you right now? with 1 being no distress at all and 10 being the most distress a human being could ever possibly feel. And at the beginning, a lot of people, or I don't know, about half the people that I that I treat for trauma will have a very difficult time at first, even assigning a number to their distress. They'll say, uh, I don't know, what do you mean? How do I know I'm in distress? And the other half of people will have a pretty good idea of, of how much distress they're at. They'll say, well well, I'm kind of nervous about being in therapy, so I'm about a four. And I'll say, how do you know you're in distress? And they'll say, I don't know, I just feel like I'm in distress. Well, I might ask, where, where do you feel it in your body? And we, we want to get to a place where they very quickly can identify those physical and emotional cues telling them how much distress they're in. And I'll get to why distress is very important to be aware of. But what I look for are things like, oh well, I, I can I can feel my adrenaline pumping, I can I can feel my heart racing a bit more. I, I feel some fluttering in my chest. I'm a little sweaty. Uh, my my muscles are tense. Uh, I, I have different thoughts running through my mind, different kind of negative mood sort of thoughts running through my mind. The, these are the sorts of things that I'll hear from people as they become aware of their own emotional state. And so not only in session will I ask them to rate how much distress they're in and, and what their emotional state is, but also in between sessions, I'll ask them to keep track of it. So when they come into the office, I'll say, so how was your distress level over this week? What was the highest peak of your distress? And I'll say, well, I got in a fight with my partner, and, and so I was very distressed in that moment. What number would you put to it? Well, it was about a seven. And I would say, okay, well, that's, that's quite high. How did you know you were a seven at the time? What were the physical cues? What kind of thoughts did you have? What did it feel like? It's, it's very important that really everybody, but particularly people going through trauma treatment, understand their own emotions to be aware of it. Because in order for them to move on through recovery, they have to be an expert on their own, on their own emotions. Because their emotions will will tell them how to proceed to help themselves recover from the trauma. So once I feel pretty secure in their ability to monitor and identify their emotional state, whether it's distress or anger or sadness or in a bad mood or in a happy mood, these are important things to be aware of. But the main thing I, I, I focus on is their distress level. And by distress, people usually interpret that word to mean that they're anxious, They're upset, they're they're having a fight or flight response, they're wanting to get out of the room, they might get claustrophobic, they might have a fear response but not really know what they're afraid of, they might feel threatened in some way. This is a very common feeling for people who have been traumatized. It's basically when, when their trauma is triggered, they will have that distress response. For instance, someone has been physically abused by their mother. Well, when a person that resembles their mother starts to yell at them, even though they're not physically threatening, like say they're a pedestrian and they're going to cross the road and a woman police officer says, hey, stop, I told you to stop. Well, that authority and that firm voice from a female authority figure might trigger the trauma for this individual in that they were physically abused by their mother. And in that moment their distress level could spike. And this distress level has all sorts of negative effects. Not only is it does it is it distressing and that's suffering for the individual, but it also can cause all sorts of problems for the person. It can cause them to dissociate and let me go into dissociation. So when when people dissociate Um, boy, how do I describe dissociation? It's such a strange phenomenon. But basically, when you have people that are young children, and they are experiencing some sort of trauma, they will often develop a defense mechanism, shall we call it a, a neurological coping mechanism to deal with the trauma. And that is to dissociate to to distance yourself from reality by becoming distant from the world, if this makes any sense. And if you've ever dissociated, then you know what I'm talking about. And if you have never dissociated and you don't know anyone who's dissociated, then you'll have no idea what I'm talking about. And it'll sound quite strange, but it's really quite common for people who have been traumatized. What people will say uh, who experienced dissociation is the common thing that I hear is they'll, they'll say that they're sort of in the back of their head that they sort of they feel like there's the outside version of them and then there's the inside version of them that's that's distant it's it feels as though they're pulling away from their senses in a sense and and this is a defensive technique to deal with trauma so you can imagine if you're 5 years old and you're trapped and your parents are abusing you one effective way to deal with it when all else has failed, because y- you've, you've tried to fight back, you've tried to run away, none of these things, you've reached out for help, none of these things have worked. And so what the brain does is it says, there is one thing we can resort to, and that is, is just to turn off parts of the brain so that you don't have to experience this abuse right now. And that's essentially a crude way of describing dissociation. So this defense technique, this coping mechanism, will persist into adulthood oftentimes. And so when that police officer says, stop, don't cross the street, even though it's not an actual threat, the police officer isn't going to come over to the person and, and beat the individual. They're just being firm with their voice, but it resembles that trauma that they experienced as a child, and then the individual will dissociate and will go through the day in a dissociative state, and might even not remember what happened. For in an extreme case, for instance, the person might walk to work, uh, be kind of in a daze, do their work in a in a daze, go home, and then come back from dissociation and not remember the whole afternoon. That's an extreme case. Usually, people will be uh, recording memories during their dissociative states, but. But you can imagine being very distant from the world can, can be quite distressing in and of itself and also make it difficult to function in the world. And it, it's really quite worrisome to people when they dissociate. So part of the education portion that I do with people up front is to normalize association, is to say it's normal for people. It's, there's nothing to be afraid of. We'll try to avoid it, but we'll just mainly use it as a barometer for how you're doing with your recovery if if you're dissociating then we're probably moving too fast in your trauma recovery we we don't want to have we don't want to push you to that point where you are so distressed that your that your mind has to dissociate in order to cope so we'll try to keep the threshold of dis, of distress below that and I, I had a client recently actually that had been dissociating his entire life periodically and he had no idea what it was. And once we started talking about it, he said, yeah, that's exactly th- what I experienced. And, and he said that he, he thought that it was allergies. He thought that when he had that experience, that dissociative experience, he thought it was because he must be having aller- an, an allergic reaction to pollen or something. And it makes sense, right? If, if you have a a distancing of yourself from the world and in the culture there's no talk about dissociation because it's complex and involves things that are disturbing to people and they don't want to talk about it but he it makes sense that you would try to figure out what it was and a similar experience is when you have allergies you know when your face is all stuffed up and, and you, you know, your, your eyes are kind of watery. You feel a little distant from the world. You don't feel as fluid in the world as you would normally. And so I, it seemed like a logical um, conclusion for this person to come to anyway. So, uh, so yeah, so first stage is education. Second stage is to understand their emotions. And then the third stage is to be able to affect their emotional state. So not only do they know how distressed they are, but now we need to teach them how to change their distress level, because this is an important skill to have for everybody, particularly for people going through trauma recovery. So in this phase, we talk about a lot of skills. It's a lot of CBT stuff. We talk about when you are a seven on the distress scale. What do you do and what works for you? You know, there are a lot, there's a long list of things that people can do both in their thoughts and in their behavior that will reduce their distress. And some techniques work for some individuals and different techniques work for other individuals. So things like deep breathing, meditation, taking a walk cuddling with your dog. I'm I'm big on physical affection with animals and other human beings. I I frequently will prescribe to people cuddling with their partner for 30 minutes a day. There is a magical effect when people cuddle more with their loved ones and their animals. It has to do with our limbic brain. And I won't get into that. But but so so there's things like that 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 I'll talk about. And so over time, week to week, we come up with techniques that work for them. You know, so one person might say, well, what really helps for me is when I journal. And another person might say, well, what really works for me is if I meditate. Another person might say, I need to exercise or I need to... And, and so they become really adept at being able to notice their emotional state and then lower their distress level. And once I have a number of weeks where they seem to be having success... With reducing their distress level, then we go into the final phase, which is to talk about their trauma. The reason why we need these, these things up front is because once they start talking about their trauma with me, their trauma will be re-triggered. It's just inevitable. They will re-experience their trauma and it will be traumatic once again. It will not be a pleasant experience for them. They will experience distress, not only in session, but directly after sessions often and then in between sessions you'll find that people, particularly with, with severe trauma, will experience quite drastic spikes of distress in between sessions. And so when they have the ability to notice their distress and know how to reduce it and, and have a lot of good self-care skills, they can reduce their distress to a tolerable level. It, essentially, the, the old saying, no pain, no gain, applies here. In order to recover from trauma, you have to experience the trauma to some extent. And this isn't true for everybody, but in general, for the people that I've treated, they they can't recover from their trauma until they, to some extent, re-experience it through talking about it. I'm not saying re-experience it like being beat again or something or being raped, but they, they have to recall the memory. They have to work through the memory. They have to start talking about it. And as they start talking about it and remembering the specific details, which they often remember very, very specific details, they will experience it as if it's happening all over again, but at a lesser distressing level. And I won't go into the brain science and the research on, and all the ideas regarding this, but essentially the idea is, is that you want the client to experience some distress – like, say, on the scale from 1 to 10, a 5 or a 6, something like that. So you want them to experience that for an extended period of time. And as that time goes on, you want them to try to lower their distress level and reassure themselves and, and the therapist reassure them that they're safe and that they're okay. And that they're, they're not going to be harmed. And through that experience of experiencing that distress and then having it lowered and being exposed to those memories, it habituates the brain to the trauma to the point where the trauma no longer has the negative effects as it had before. That's a complicated thing, but I hope that makes sense. The other thing that that you're monitoring is you don't want any big spikes. You don't want any eights, nines, tens on the scale of distress because up there... They're not recovering from trauma. They're re-experiencing the trauma to such an extent that they're actually re-traumatizing themselves. And this, this, at the very least, isn't going to help their therapy. And at the worst, it's going to re-traumatize them. It's going to create another trauma event, which is why people avoid talking about trauma in the first place. Because when they do talk about it, they have this huge spike in their trauma and they're traumatized again and this compounds the trauma and this is what was happening with my clients 15 years ago was they would sit down and they'd say I want to talk about my trauma and I would say great tell me about it and then they would just launch into talking about their trauma without any awareness of their distress level without any awareness of what trauma recovery was like without any self-care without any ability to lower their emotions and and, and without any pacing which is another important thing. You have to pace it very slowly. You have to edge your way into it. You don't, you don't jump off the diving board. You, you gently go into the waiting pool, if that makes any sense. So, with these clients a long time ago, they they would they would just lay it all out there, and and a part of them really wanted to do that. But what what would happen is is they would have this spike in, in distress, and then after this session, they would be destabilized for a couple weeks, and they would say, "Boy, therapy really sucks. I don't like therapy. I'm never going back." Even though I like Kirk as a therapist, he was he was nice, and I told him that I liked talking to him. I do I do not like this feeling, so I'm never going to do this again. And, and and so that's that's my estimation as to what happened. And so that's a part of that education piece up front in, in in you know the first stage is clients have to understand that that it's not going to be fun and games. There there are going to be difficulties, but but we're going to pace it so it's not it's not overwhelming. And once you get them to agree to that, then then they they know what they're getting into. And the thing about trauma is that people with with PTSD and other trauma related difficulties. They gravitate towards situations that they can predict because when they were being traumatized as, as children or when they were younger, they d- were not able to predict when things were going to happen. And when you give them that power to predict what's going to happen, they feel much more safe and they tend to flourish within that. So, so I lay it all out for them and I, I give them all the choices and I tell them what's typically going to happen and I, I let them make, make the call. For instance, just as an example of this, uh, last week I was working with a client with his trauma. I didn't feel that he had mastered the second and the third step. He didn't seem to be as aware of his emotions as as I was hoping he would be. And he didn't seem to be able to monitor his distress level as well as I hoped he would be able to. And he was getting antsy. He was, he was saying, you know, I really want to move forward with, with therapy. And I said, well, I, I don't recommend it given the level of skill you have regarding your ability to recognize your emotional state. And he said, well, yeah, I, I understand that. We've been talking about that for weeks, but I, I really just want to move forward and I want to see what happens. And I, I'm willing to take that risk. And so we talked about it for a while, and we came to the collaborative decision that we would move forward and start talking about his trauma. But it was his call. It, it's, it's his decision, and, and hopefully it's the right one. We'll, we'll just have to see, and we'll monitor it as time goes on. But, but it's in his hands. He knows the deal. And it, when he thinks about all the different factors, he says, you know what, I, I want to move forward. I'm, I'm willing to take that risk. We've been talking about it for months. I want to start doing it. And so I made that clinical choice and we'll see what happens. In other words, when when they're in this final phase, as they're talking about the, the trauma, they're re-experiencing it in their mind. They're reliving it. And as they're reliving it, they're habituating themselves to the memory. Part of the problem with trauma is that the the memory becomes traumatic to remember. And so the person will avoid the memory and they'll avoid things that trigger the memory. And then they'll avoid things that trigger the triggers that trigger the memory. And they become quite limited in their behavior in terms of what they can do and what they can't do. And when their trauma is triggered, they, they might become quite distressed and they might turn to drugs and alcohol to, to calm themselves. They might engage in self-destructive behavior. They might dissociate. There's all sorts of, of difficulties that come out of trauma. Through therapy, as they start to approach those very difficult feelings, they experience that distress. But at the same time, in therapy and in their own life, they, they learn how to reduce that distress, to calm them down, to give themselves safety, to alleviate that pain, and they become able to approach their trauma and work through it. And at the end, after they've talked about the experiences and they've, they've felt the feelings and they've felt the distress at a, at a tolerable level and they've, they've managed to habituate themselves to, to the details. What, what I find and what a lot of researchers find is that the individual will tell the traumatic story and the distress the no longer returns. They're able to tell the story. Without any distress or with very little distress and also when their trauma is triggered so to speak when something reminds them of their trauma they don't experience PTSD symptoms or or distress or dissociation they they are free from the bonds of the trauma that's the goal and they might experience less of a need to self-medicate through alcohol and marijuana They might find themselves attracted to a different sort of romantic partner, one that's more healthy for them. They might find that they can interview for jobs more easily without being triggered, without having their self-esteem and their self-worth plummet through the floor. They might find that they're able to go to family functions and not get triggered by family members that resemble or were actually traumatizing to them as children uh, another another thing that I really want to talk about is how anger manifests with people who have been traumatized I think it's often uh, something that is ignored in our society and among clinicians that when when people have been traumatized there there are basically two different main reactions there's the reaction of retreat and then there's escape re- you just consider it the fight or flight response right so you have that the, the the flight response where you're running away or you're freezing you're trying to to get the the threat to move on without you or to go away the other response is to fight and and for some people who have been traumatized and particularly men but but not always women certainly can do this too i've had men and women tell me about this is that when their trauma is triggered, they have an anger response, and and a quite severe one. They might want to um, get into a physical fight. They they might even go to bars and start shouldering people in an attempt to start a fight because they want to get into a fight. And some of them, some of the time, they don't want to win the fight. They just want to get beat up. They want to they want to lose the fight. And this is a way of coping with the trauma. It's not some like ha 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 i 'm going to get back at society it 's not that at all. What it is is because they 're suffering so much and because because they 're in so much distress and because they feel so threatened and because they feel so unsafe they it, they go they 're like a moth to a flame it's it 's like if i 'm going to go down, I might as well go down swinging is maybe a way of looking at it. If, if I'm afraid, one way to cope with that is to gain power through violence or to test whether or not I can handle the violence. It's, if, if you're the sort of person that's like this, you'll understand what I'm talking about. And if you're not, you'll, you'll probably be bewildered. But it seems like a strange response to some people. That when you're afraid, you would go toward what is making you afraid. That seems counterintuitive, but for many people, they do that. Even sexual abuse survivors will do that. Uh, Rape victims will sometimes seek out rapists, essentially, to have sex with as a way of trying to gain power over the situation. And so in the same way, if you have been physically Abused, you might seek out physical abusers as a way of gaining power over the situation. Another way of looking at it is that if you're terrified of being punched in the face, one way to cure yourself of that fear is to get punched in the face because you're you'll realize that you you're not dead after the punch in the face and so that's a that's another thing you know or if you're sexual abuse survivor if you're terrified of being raped one way to alleviate that fear is to go to the rapists and 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 have them rape you in a way that you control which is a very very strange way of looking at it when when I put it in those words but but it is a way that a lot of people will cope with trauma so, I mentioned pacing, and I, I just want to talk about that a little bit it 's very important that people pace themselves as they talk about their trauma the The way that I like to do it is as I say well let 's just talk about talking about your trauma you know we 're going to talk about your stories and we 're going to talk about when it happened, and i 'm going to write down some notes, and then you 're going to probably feel some distress. And you're going to use your techniques. And then at that point, I might check in with a client and say, how does that feel? You? As we talk about talking about your trauma, how does that feel to you? Well, if that creates a lot of distress for them, then we might just do that for a while. We might just talk about talking about their trauma until they become habituated to that. And then we might actually talk about their trauma. So, so I start there. And then, and then we might talk about the peripheral uh, details, So say, for instance, there's a woman who was brutally raped by a friend at a party when everyone was intoxicated. Well, there are certain details to that event that are quite, shall we say, salient to the story, and there are some details that are not. So we would start with the the details that are not and see how her body reacts to that. So she might talk about how... um, you know, the time of day or what was happening just before and what she did just after. But we wouldn't talk about the way his breath smelled, for instance, or the, the exact feeling of the pain it, 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 that she experienced. That, that might be, for some people, more salient and more traumatic of a memory to be exposed to. And so we won't go to those more traumatic memories until the other memories have been habituated. So that that's the pacing thing. And so, so, so as a clinician, what I will do is I will slow clients down. So as with my clients 15 years ago, if I could go back to that, as soon as she launched into her story, I would say, whoa, whoa, hold on. You know, let, let's make sure that we go slow. And so if anything, my clients are always saying, no, I'm okay. I want to move forward. Stop, stop slowing me down. That that's the, biz- that's the position you want to be in as a clinician. You want to be in a place where your clients are telling you that you're going too slow. You never want to be in a situation where your clients are telling you you're going too fast because if they're telling you you're going too slow, then they're ready to move forward and then you can move forward. I find that a lot of therapists, they want to move fast They want be in a, because they, they want to go home at night feeling as though they did something. And one way that a lot of clinicians walk away feeling like they did something was, is when a client confides in them a very difficult story, including having been traumatized. And so in my experience, a lot of clinicians, because I supervise a lot of, a lot of therapists, When their client says, oh, I I was traumatized as a child, I'd really like to tell you that, that story. The therapist obviously says, oh, good. Tell me. Yes. Get it out. Get it off your chest. And the therapist feels very gratified that the client would trust them with that. But but what they don't understand often is that they have to pace the client. Otherwise, not only will they hurt the client if they go too fast, but the client might not ever come back to therapy again, which which happens a lot, which I've heard a lot of other clinicians talk about this phenomenon where the, the client will never return after being re-traumatized in therapy. So it's very important that the clinician pace it. And it's a very delicate process. You know, it's, there's no science to this in terms of telling you exactly what you will do as a clinician in every moment. So you have to have a very good collaborative working alliance with your client. You have to have a language around distress and around pacing. You have to be familiar with therapy between the two of you. And you have to have a good intuitive sense of where the client is at. For instance, I can often tell when my clients are dissociating, even if they aren't telling me that they're dissociating like for instance a, a woman uh, about a month ago in in sessions she started to dissociate and i asked her i said so uh, how do you feel right now she says i feel okay and i said well uh, are you dissociating at all is is there any dissociation and she said no and and i said oh, okay and i just took her word for it and then five minutes later she said Actually, yes, I have, been, I have been dissociating this whole time. She, she, she was dissociating to the point where she didn't recognize that she was associating, if that makes any sense. You get a sense for the body language that people have when they are distressed and when they're dissociating. And so you need to have that repertoire and that familiarity with your clients before moving forward with, with the trauma treatment. Also, you need to use a measurement in order to figure out whether or not the therapy that you have done with the client has been effective. So you can use a symptom checklist or what I use is the TSI-2, the Trauma Symptom Inventory-2. This is a, a standard trauma symptom measure that measures symptoms of trauma. And I will administer at the beginning and in the middle and at various different times and at the end. And in, in all the cases that I've worked with, you will see a dramatic and steady decrease in trauma symptoms for people that go through this type of therapy. And it's a wonderful way to show the client how, how their hard work has been effective in helping them. It, you, you look at the numbers and you compare it to the norms and you say, look, look where you were at the beginning. You were at the 90th percentile on the anxiety scale, and now you're much, much lower than that. So it's a, it's good for that too. Okay. So any final thoughts about this? My my big point here is that I want clinicians to become competent in trauma recovery, but also I, I want People out there that are not clinicians that have been traumatized to understand that there is a treatment for your trauma that you can recover, that you can have significantly less distress if you go through successful trauma recovery. And I've done it many times. It's, it's one of the things that you can treat fairly easily. It's There are things that you can't treat through psychotherapy, like schizophrenia. There, there's, there's not much that psychotherapy can do other than to help them cope and, and give them support. But you're not going to take away their schizophrenia. But PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and other trauma-related issues can be alleviated through therapy. And there are a lot of people that come to me that have been to other therapists before and they they have never even really thought that they that they no longer have to live within the bonds of trauma. In fact, a lot of people don't even necessarily even know that the trauma is the problem. For instance, I had a a, a couple come to me recently. They wanted couple counseling. They were having conflict between them. And it became clear pretty early on that the issue was Not that they were having conflict, but that they were both traumatized individuals and that when their partner triggered their trauma, they would have distress and would react with this fight or flight response. One person getting angry and the other person trying to run away. Uh, emotionally, and this created conflict between the two of them. So I recommended that instead of couples counseling, they both engage in PTSD treatment. So there's a lot of people that are coming into therapy, I think, that would be better served by getting trauma treatment rather than other kinds of goals that, that, that people would work on. I should mention that there's also EMDR, which is something that I'm sure a lot of people are thinking, why isn't he talking about EMDR? I don't use EMDR. I find that the model that I use is sufficient and streamlined to some extent. So if you're a person out there that's looking for a therapist, there there are two kinds of therapists that I would look for. One is someone that does EMDR. The other one is looking for a therapist that identifies trauma as something that they can help you with. And then I would have a little interview with them uh, over email or the phone or something. And it's, and I would ask them, so how exactly do you help people recover from trauma? If they just have a general response, then I would run away. If, but if they have a response that's, that's similar to mine they have a systematic approach to it and they've read the research and, and they've had success in the past, then I would test them out. And as always, as I always tell people, sometimes therapists don't work out. You you go for five sessions and you're like, you know what? I don't think this is working out for whatever reason. We're not, we're not, we're not gelling. Our vibe isn't, isn't very good for me. Then just jump ship and, and get another, get another therapist. You know, what's the chance that you're going to meet that one person that's going to help you the first try. It's, it's not very often. So, so make sure you advocate for yourself in that way. All right. Well, that does it for another episode of psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me and please take care of yourself.